Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Wild Enrichment Podcast, a podcast about zoos, aquariums, animal enrichment, and everything in between. I'm your host, Kyle Benton-Jones, zookeeper, animal lover, enrichment builder, and creator of wildenrichment.com. This is the Wild Enrichment Podcast. Enjoy. Okay. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Wild Enrichment Podcast. Today, we are joined with Zoo Enrichment Lab, uh, Sarah and Matthew of Zoo Enrichment Lab, and we are going to be talking about uh, Zoo Enrichment Lab as a company and some of the amazing things they that they are able to do. So uh, thank you for coming on, uh, Sarah and Matthew, and uh, welcome to the show. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for inviting us. Uh, so we'll sort of start with uh you know zoo enrichment lab and a little backstory there uh you know what is zoo enrichment lab and you know tell us a little bit more about the company what is it um well zoo enrichment lab is just me and matthew um we were working professionally in a zoo environment for a couple decades and covid kind of happened and you know we were a casualty of budget cuts and we decided to continue keep continuing doing the work that we were doing in the zoo world, just but offering it for all zoos and aquariums that are in need. Um, and we are a fabrication shop and we specialize in creating natural looking enrichment, uh, puzzle feeders and timed feeders and um, sleeping cozy beds. Um, but we also do um, paint murals and um, habitat renovations that are more um, minded towards animal welfare and um, and enriching experiences. So it's a lot to sum up in a, a quick little statement, but um, we consult yeah. a lot with uh, zoos that are just beginning their enrichment program as a as a, a full focus. Um, They've most have been doing it in a kind of a casual way forever, but they're realizing that there's a there's a certain methodology that um, they see massive improvements in their animals' uh, welfare if they apply enrichment and fairly focused and and fairly calculated strategies. In other words, mm -hmm. yeah, definitely, yeah. So uh, were you guys, um, you know? ever involved in the sort of like animal care side of things and the keeping side of things, or is sort of like fabrication and exhibit design been, uh, you know, what you've done for most of your careers? Yeah. I, we, we are both artists. We're both um, graduates of the school of the art Institute. And we were hired um, by Brookfield zoo um, in the uh, exhibits department which was, of course, producing the environments, um, maintaining the environments, making fake rocks and fake trees and, and fake waterways and anything to do to uh, um, naturalize and make an animal more comfortable. Um, the need for enrichment uh, suddenly became primary in a lot of the uh, programs of the animals at the zoo and the keepers. Um, and they naturally came to us because we already had uh, skills with the materials and the um, tools that would produce that stuff. So it's not like we really, we didn't really, we don't have degrees in animal behavior or anything like that, but we um, had a lot of practical skill as to how to make stuff both 
durable and affordable um, so that uh, people can employ, employ multiple enrichments for each animal rather than just giving them one thing to sort of play with and think that that's going to uh, fulfill their needs. Right. So, um, you know, when was the first time you were sort of exposed to enrichment as an idea? And, you know, how did, how did you get, was this sort of what's getting hired by uh, this zoo, like how you guys got sort of involved in, um, you know, behavioral husbandry and all that? Well, it, it was a kind of a, a slow journey. Um, there's not one critical moment where it's like, hey, that's enrichment. Um, I think as a Brookfield Zoo made a strong uh, decision to change from everything in an environment, animal's environment needs to look natural. And so there were a lot of stainless steel food dishes or animal, like plastic animal crates or, you know, the shiny red ball, the traffic cones, the, you know, fire hose, a lot of those kind of traditional um, zoo I kind of using, don't want to use the word toys, but um, kind of those furniture pieces. Mm -hmm. And we were, as artists, we were asked to camouflage them. Um, and as artists, we didn't really want to just paint somebody else's awkward thing. So we kind of started to re-sculpt stuff. And if we're going to make um, a food dish that looks like a rock or a tree, um, then we realized, well, what if we put a little puzzle in it? Um, what if we make it a little bit more challenging for the animal or if an animal's, you know, if we have to make a bed for an animal and they're not visible or they're a bit shy um, or it's a nocturnal animal that spends a lot of their time sleeping. It's like, well, how do we, you know, encourage that animal to be a bit more active or if they are in their bed, how do we make it so they it looks natural and cozy, but then the animal can still be viewed by the public. And so it was this kind of slow progression of um, kind of traditional exhibitry and fabrication. And then kind of as we were talking to the animal care staff um, and hearing their problems and their concerns and the things that, that, that really struggle with their day of um, getting their animals active and visible and um, you know, in, engaged in their environment so they, uh, the public can see their um, natural behaviors and such. And then we just started kind of realizing there was a problem without a solution. And that's where we started developing things. Um, and it was just kind of a slow journey. And at some point during that journey, um, our work making enrichment seemed to be conflicting with our exhibitry traditional job of building and repairing exhibits. And so we kind of then realized that this was such a big enough problem that we should be doing this full time. And that's when we became full time enrichment specialists and working instead of with the facilities department, working with the animal care staff and the behavior behaviorists, the trainers, the welfare specialists, the nutritionists, even the vet staff. Mm -hmm. And so we've kind of learned the animal care kind of through osmosis, through these really smart people right. we surrounded ourselves with. And our specialty, our specialty is in um, a staff member, a keeper or a curator having a very particular behavior that they'd like to see. And there is no product or thing which necessarily can 
instantly provide that. And since we're a custom house, we can just make it and we can make experimental efforts to see if that works. And if it doesn't, why we'll move on to something else. But not only do we do therefore kind of species specific items, but because we're working closely with the staff, we also do individualist items. So if we we had a male gorilla who hated spoons for some reason because of something in his past, he never told us. And therefore we knew not to produce not to produce anything for him that had a spoon in it. Whereas the others the other gorillas in the in the group didn't care. So they could have had spoons if if that's what we came up with. So that, that's part of the principal advantage of our methodology is that keepers can ask for very particular, very particular things and hope to get them. Right. Cause that's, that's, you know, sort of filling, fulfilling two sort of needs because a lot of, especially mass produced enrichment items, you know, a lot of them are fantastic and, you know, very durable. And, but at the same time, you know, not only uh, you've highlighted, you know, the need for not only custom enrichment for a specific exhibit and a, you know, specific institution's needs, but also those individuals, because yeah, as you, as you mentioned, like there's so many individual animals that, you know, might live with a group of, you know, other animals, but they need such a specific uh, enrichment item and they have such a specific enrichment needs, whether it be medical or, you know, maybe they're two, they're older, they're one of the older animals in the group and they can't just do a lot of what other animals are doing uh, in the group. So yeah, right. that's, that's, you know, really two specific needs uh, right. that you're, that you're really able to provide for with that sort of service. Right. And we have, it, it's also important to point out that we, we have made uh, for the veterinary staff, we've made um, prosthetic devices, support devices, uh, um, surgical devices and, and, things that they need and they can come to us because again it's the same thing they re there really isn't a rhino probe in the market that you can look look up in a catalog and and hope that it's going to work um so the the staff was able to come with, to us and any vet is still able to come to us and ask for something that will very specifically fill that need right yeah, that's 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 fantastic. So just more out of personal interest, but, you know, you guys said that you both attended art school. I'm sure, you know, this sort of you you didn't attend art school uh, in thoughts of, you know, building enrichment professionally. Uh, how what did that sort of road look like and how did you sort of develop these skills? Because I'm sure, you know, you, you learned a lot of uh, very, very useful skills in art school, but at the same time. Um, yeah, I'm sure there's a lot that you had to learn specifically for this job. Well, my journey is kind of funny. You say like you didn't go to school to build enrichment for animals, but when I went to art school, I was making animal art animal, a lot of turtle themes running through my work. And at the school of the Art Institute of Chicago, they're kind of a, a fine arts and high concept. And so right. Turtles and tortoises kind of seemed a bit lowbrow. And so I was met with a lot of resistance, often in critiques. And I just remember saying that, you know, I want to make not just make art, animal art, but I want to make art for animals. And even not being in at the time, I didn't wasn't able to articulate what that even meant. Um, 
And looking back on on that now, it's 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 very very poignant of you know where where I am and. Um, it, it wasn't a journey that I planned out. It was very just kind of organically happened that I want, I knew I wanted to be in a zoo environment and I wanted to be surrounded by, you know, conservation and, and animals. Um, and I didn't know what my final form would be. So I just kind of collected skills and I did that at the art Institute. I did that when I was working in the exhibits department, you know, learning to use different uh, construction tools and materials and uh, strategies and different art uh, materials and techniques. And um, even working with the uh, animal care staff, just learning different strategies and welfare concepts and, uh, you know, learning about choice and control and, um, welfare standards and 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 just kind of putting that all together um yeah so it's kind of a, a strange journey but it i think i ended up exactly where i needed to be and my uh path was almost entirely different i actually come from a, a theater um film and video production background because i've produced props and prosthetics and and set pieces for opera and theater and film uh, much of my life. And I still somewhat regard these things as props, at least aesthetically. We try to make things that blend into the environment so that if the animal's not interacting with it, it's just not, it's not sticking out. It's not an obvious thing. If the animal's working with it, then it's really exciting for everybody to observe, but uh, we want it to just blend in so that Again, the the if if you think of the viewing audience uh, at a theater being similar to the viewing audience at a zoo, they want to see the principal actors, which of course is the animals. So our our stuff is support in both a, a behavioral way and in an aesthetic way. Yeah, that's so that's so interesting. That's a really interesting uh, sort of parallel, yeah. and it's just it's amazing how. Uh, you know, skills you develop, and it's, you know, the same with a lot of stuff you do in life that a lot of skills, you know, sort of transfer over that you just didn't even, didn't even think a lot, a lot of the enrichment that I built, like I grew up on a farm and I was just, you know, I developed a lot of the skills from fixing fences and, yeah. you know, building sheds and all sorts of different things like that. And, you know, getting into, I started in the sort of maintenance department of a zoo and, yeah, it was just a lot of those skills sort of transfer over and you just don't even really uh, don't even realize it until until you're just doing it. <laughs> right. Mm -hmm. And there's a certain level of uh, armchair engineering that's involved that uh, would be almost indescribable to anybody else in a different discipline because you're producing stuff that is supposed to withstand an uh, adult polar bear or a rhinoceros or an elephant. Yeah. Um, and you... The, the call is different. It, it's you have to make stuff that's incredibly tough that you can drive a truck over and then maybe the animal will be able to, to deal with it. Or sometimes incredibly sensitive things where the animal has to have um, a, a super safe, a, a attractive, but also um, not terribly challenging things so that they can still interact with it. it we run the gamut. We absolutely do. 
Yeah, right. Yeah, that's that's super interesting. So you guys you guys do uh, a ton of stuff, like just based on you know your website on the sort of store section. You know, you have enrichment, you have animal ambassador equipment, you have beds, logs, and hammocks, time feeders, yep. arts, murals, custom fabrication. Is there something? specific you know is there a product that you feel that best sums up what you guys do because there's just such a huge repertoire of skills is there something that you know people could go right now and kind of get a good overview or is it just too broad um you know it's it's funny this is going to be the worst sales pitch ever but it's not about the stuff um <laughs> enrichment yeah. isn't about a thing or an item or a, a one one thing that's going to be, oh, this is enrichment. Um, it's more about con bigger, broad concepts and strategies. And um, our stuff is, 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 like I said, I'm the worst saleswoman ever. Our stuff is dumb. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and it's how they're used that makes them smart. Yeah. And um, I think those strategies and those concepts of, you know, enriching experiences and behavior-based goals, um, not so much about, you know, giving an animal a new item every day, but what what behaviors do we want to see these animals um, exhibit? And how do we want to give an animal um, choice throughout their day? Or how are we going to make their environment a little bit more unpredictable? Um, and if I had to pick one thing on our, our website, um, it would probably be the time feeders because I think that kind of falls in those that concept and strategies of it's a thing that provides um, enrichment throughout the day. You can, you can use them in a smart way where they can provide food at night or off hours when staff's not around. Um, when they're used in multiples, you can get an animal traveling around their habitat and exploring and really searching and foraging for food. I think of, of all the things that we've made, that has the biggest impact on behavior because um, when, when people kind of try to decide if a, an enrichment item is successful, you're like, oh, an animal interacted with it for 20 minutes. Yay. Um, well, they're, days 24 hours mm -hmm. so yeah. even even a an ice treat that takes three hours to thaw i mean that's great but you know i think the timed feeders have the ability to um kind of they look at their entire 24-hour cycle mm -hmm. um and that's that's kind of unique to things on our site i suppose yeah. i suppose that aesthetically uh an exemplary product would be our chat trees because um, they're a pretty big thing that's on wheels that um, is an artificial tree, usually designed with the specific animal in mind, if it's a sloth or if it's a tamandua or a snake, um, which is something that is presented to the public um, and is also a, a means of transporting the animal rather than just schlepping it out and putting it on a table in a in a uh, conference room or a classroom. Um, they're they're very calculated at every step of production to uh, facilitate the animal making as much uh, of every square inch of it as possible, but also uh, durable and useful for the 
staff so that they could break the thing down throw it in the back of a van and, and take it off to a school or a public uh, presentation. Um, and they can have lots of different behavioral things built into them. It might be a, a some kind of a beaker that's got um, a, a succulent in it that the animal can get to or a platform for them to rest on or a, a deliberate way for them to climb comfortably. So they're pretty exemplary of a lot of the work that we do because they involve a lot of different expectations all at the same time. And they need to look good. They need to look attractive for the, uh, we, we used to say, I guess we haven't said it too much, but we used to say that we kind of are producing our stuff for that person who shows up at a zoo with a great big camera with a huge lens and the, and the fisherman's vest, um, who, who wants to get a great shot of an animal close up, the thing that they're interacting with should also be attractive enough and interesting enough that it can be part of that image. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, no, that's fair. And the, the chat trees are, are outstanding. I, I was looking through them on on the website. Yeah, they really are. They really are amazing. I, and I've, you know, I've been talking about a lot of the stuff that you guys have just touched on. Like the, I've also been down a rabbit hole of time feeders as of late. Uh, so I definitely, you know, understand how, how useful and sort of once you get those mechanisms and once you have, uh, you know, for a time feeder, there's just the applications are, are limitless and they're just so easy to, to customize and to, uh, you know, yeah, and the, change, the change in behavior is so almost instant for the animals yeah. because yeah, yeah, you're yeah. changing their, not only their, their feeding schedule, but you're changing their interaction with their uh, either holding or with their um, exhibit space. Um, and it, it, we have seen manifest differences in behavior sometimes within a week of an animal having a um, time feeders. Applied. But there's there's definitely a right way to use time feeders in a wrong way. Mm -hmm. um, where if you just use one time feeder that drops food in an incredibly predictable manner, um, then you've got an animal that's just going to sleep under that feeder. Yeah. Or um, just know at one o'clock every day to kind of get up and go get food and then go back to bed. Um, so there is kind of a right way and a wrong way to use them. We had um, installed timed feeders with a group of um, Asian small clawed otters. And they have a incredibly high metabolism and they're always hungry. Um, and so first thing in the morning when staff would come in, these animals would be screaming for food and would associate people with food. And when they were in their main habitat, um, they'd be screaming at the shift door because they knew that when they shift, they get rewarded with food. Um, and of course, shift doors are in a place where you don't really see the animal. Um, so we put um, three belt feeders on their waterway and the animals couldn't see, it wasn't in a line of sight where they could see all three at once. So it encouraged them to swim between the three. Um, and about 20% of their diet was put on these um, belt feeders and we had modified them to fit into coolers so that their fish and clams could stay at um, food safe uh, temperatures throughout the day. And it instantly um, changed their behavior. They were more active. They were no longer screaming at staff for food. Um, 
more visible. Yeah, more visible. We had one that was over grooming herself. I think it was a female. Was it? I can't remember. Um, and she had actually licked a substantial portion of her fur away from her haunch. And as soon as the time feeders were employed, that behavior stopped and the fur grew back. The, the problem with the time feeders was um, staff realized how successful they were and they were still feeding them in other traditional ways, which was like a lot of work. So they're like, oh, well, let's just put the bulk of their diet on these belt feeders. And it turned out that fish was almost constantly dropping off these feeders. <laughs> and so one otter, and they have these, the belt feeders have, um, they have a spring and clockwork mechanism. They don't require any um, electricity or batteries to operate. <laughs> and so, but there is this kind of clockwork ticking noise and the otter started bobbing her head to the clockwork and she was rewarded with a fish and she bobbed her head and she was rewarded with a fish. And so she had developed this superstitious behavior. If I bob my head, I get fish. Um, right. So the belt feeders were discontinued for almost a year yep. and thought that, okay, let's try them again. And the very first day they put the belt feeders back in use, she started bobbing her head again. So it's, once an animal learns something, um, you know, it's, it's hard to kind of work backwards, but, um, yeah, there's, there's definitely a, a good way and a wrong way to use time feeders. And I think if you do research and you find, you'll find a lot of, um, conflicting scientific, uh, papers and it's just because of how you use them. Again, the stuff is stupid. It's the concepts that go along yeah. and, and, and how you use them. That's smart. Yeah, for sure. And I, I totally agree because I find, you know, one of the, the biggest benefits of, of timed feeders is really be able to expand that sort of activity window that an animal has because, you know, as a, as an animal care staff, like you, you're, you're limited on as far as, you know, how many times you can feed an animal and, sure. uh, you know, and you're only there a lot, a lot of us are only there till four or 5 PM. And, you know, you have some animals that are, should be active way well into the evening. And, you know, right. these timed feeders really allow you to, uh, sort of expand that window. But if that window becomes predictable, then it's the same as if, you know, you were just still feeding them at just different times of day and you want it to sort of be unpredictable. And right. The because one, that, the, that's what the sorry. natural role is. The natural. Yeah, role is. no, absolutely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You want that. You, you want that to sort of main uh, maintain its novelty as far as when they're going to get fed. But yes. it's, it's funny because recently I made a, uh, a water-based timed feeder and the thing was was so unreliable and so and it was just you know baffling in the way that it worked that there was just no possible way that we could schedule any time and we would come in every morning and be like oh did it go off today okay good and then so it kind of kept that novelty through just just design because there was just it was just impossible to time um you know the the water flow between between two jugs but uh just to you know sort of highlight how you know sometimes they can be useful the a animal sanctuary in uh, south america took that design and they were actually using them to feed their animals so they didn't get that sort of association with people so they could be released uh, yeah. back into the wild and that's just not an application that i had ever anticipated when sure. i was sort of building it so yeah the 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 
you know, applications for these things are, are huge. So, um, I'll, I'll definitely link into, in the show notes, uh, if anybody's interested, the, uh, Zoom Richmond lab store, and you can check out some of their, uh, time feeders and those chat trees. Cause yeah, they are, they are a, you know, a highlight in, in what you guys are, you know, capable of doing, but, um, so is there, is there something that sort of sticks out to you guys as far as, you know, a favorite project or a favorite enrichment item that you've, that you've done uh, for a facility or, you know, uh, something like that? Um, well, I don't have it necessarily a favorite item, but a favorite experience definitely is um, working with uh, Hudson, the polar bear, um, mostly because he broke all my stuff. Um, <laughs> and that's just as exciting as when something is successful. It's something really fun to see to a polar bear teeth and claw marks into something and they've kind of outsmarted you. Um, and he was a wonderful test bear in the fact that he didn't, um, he was incredibly strong and very curious and smart. And he interacted with everything that we'd always give him but he would break something and he wouldn't ingest any of the small yeah. pieces. And so he, we would do it under observation and see, we could gather so much information from him because we could see how things were broken. We could see how he was interacting with something. And it was, and we, we knew we were doing it safely where other polar bears, we just couldn't have that opportunity because we wouldn't have trust that they were, they wouldn't um, ingest small pieces of plastic or something. And, um, and yeah. it's, and polar bears are so they're they're I mean, elephants definitely are strong and smart, um, but polar bears have can openers on their hands and yeah. they have the, they have the food drive and the strength. Um, and again, when you think of how they, get their food in the wild they have to be all of that stuff because they are in a very very demanding environment where they they have to break stuff up just in the hopes of seeing if food is available to them it's not like they can just wander through a forest and come across something um, bats are similar bats are um, famous for um, solving pretty complicated natural puzzles to get the food that they want from a plant that's that's you know developed evolutionarily to resist the bat so they're constantly trying to outthink one another so when we've made things for bats we thought we were making a really sophisticated item that the bat almost immediately mastered and we had to go back and and make it more challenging and more difficult because the bats were way ahead of us and they were puzzles that were very similar to things that we were making for small primates like yep. spider monkeys. So it was really, wow. really entertaining to see that, you know, and when we're talking to uh, a staff member, they're like, of course, you know, the fruit bat has to figure out where the fruit is. Is it ripe? And then how do I get into this fruit that doesn't want to be eaten? Mm -hmm. um, so right. once you think about that kind of, you know, natural history of the bats, it's like, oh, OK, that makes sense. Right. Yeah. No, that does, that does make sense. I, I haven't, I haven't worked a whole lot with bats, but that, yeah, that sounds uh, pretty amazing. And, and yeah, it's a, it's sort of this, um, you know, testing honey hole when you get an animal that is super strong and very, very smart, but you don't have to worry about them hurting themselves or ingesting enrichment. It's sort of like, right. you know, it's, that's, there's nothing better than that because that really, it puts you it can put you one animal like that, one polar bear like that can put you years ahead as yep. far as your polar bear, 
enrichment program because yeah like that's the biggest problem with uh you know animals that large is to be able to safely test enrichment because at the end of the day like what do you have that mimics a polar bear and how much force they can they can you know develop and especially with these yeah massive claws on their hands you know right and when we try to talk to like uh, manufacturers of materials and we're trying to explain like, hey, I need a spring that's springy enough for an addicts to joust with, but not too stiff. And they're like, what's an addicts? Mm -hmm. Yeah, <laughs> no, absolutely. You know, it's like, I don't know, you know, the have that common language. So it's really hard and it leads to funny conversations with uh, a lot of vendors. Yeah, definitely. I can imagine that's... Uh... That's probably very hard to source materials and stuff uh, reliably. And we fail a lot. We made a, a compression spring device that was basically a wall-mounted uh, pull toy for the puppies of uh, African wild dogs, uh, the painted dogs. And the first one we made, they yanked the spring the full length of their habitat and destroyed it almost instantly so we re we realized we had to uh, up the stakes considerably and put in a spring that was so strong we could scarcely bend it ourselves but that worked for them and they were able to to play with it and it um that's the only way we can find this stuff out is mm -hmm. to have the animals that's why we call ourselves a lab rather yeah. than a shop because we're constantly um discovering what animals are willing and capable of doing yeah. And with the with the painted dogs, um, you we may have thought, well, what's the strength of a single dog? Right. And will this toy, you know, if this toy can can withstand a pit bull or a German shepherd kind of our more common, you know, point of reference. Oh, then then surely it should be able to withstand a, a single dog. But then the thing that you're we're not kind of paying attention to is that these animals are a pack animal and they work as a unit. Yep. Um, and it takes right. the entire pack when they, when they hunt and they take down larger prey. Um, and they're really, they work as a team and a very great unit. So it's like, okay, <laughs> let's, let's start over. <laughs> right. Yeah. And I, I, on, on my side, I often talk about this concept of like a minimum viable product because I find a lot of, a lot of keepers get so hung up on, giving the, the animal that perfect enrichment item that's going to be that's going to work the first time and that's you know absolutely flawless and they've spent hours and hours working on it and that's great if you can find the time to do that and but a lot of the time you need that experimentation and you need to okay this this enrichment isn't done but it's ready to i gotta test the spring portion of this enrichment item or i've got to test this portion of the enrichment item and oh absolutely. you know just getting the the minimum okay what's the minimum uh, the easiest way for me to sort of bring out this behavior and then i can worry about perfecting it later and you know what's the safest way for me just to test this this one portion of it it's just it's so so important to really be making pro progress when you're you're building enrichment items right and that's a huge part of our work uh we're kind of famous for the way our our devices look because we naturalize it but that's actually the least amount of effort that we put into it because it's easy for us we're, we're artists it's easy for us to sculpt something to look like something else um we're pretty efficient at mold making and casting and carving 
Um, but the behavioral part of it and the and whether or not it's successful has nothing to do with that. It has to do with whether or not the animal works with it once, keeps going back to it, and um, changes the way it approaches it. And then, of course, another, it probably goes without saying, but another key thing is to provide a variety of enrichment rather than a thing. Because, right. because uh, if, you, if you could, I've said to people before, it's oversimplifying, but if you could give an animal a different enrichment device every day or a couple of different devices every day, then within a week, not giving them anything is a form of enrichment because then they're just challenged to search around and find what isn't there any longer. And all animals have a variety of behavioral things, unless I guess you're a, I don't know, a sea cucumber, um, <laughs> that, that, you know, they have a variety of different things and behaviors that you want to um, encourage and stimulate. So uh, the more, the merrier, um, some of it can be very simple. It can be sound, it can be smell, it can be uh, um, taste, any of those things. And to encourage that is is manifestly important. Yeah, definitely. Uh, do, so now that you guys have worked, you know, for quite a while with a variety of different animals at different institutions, do you guys have any advice for people looking to deliver, you know, better, more effective enrichment? Like, what would you tell, you know, the people that are listening to this if you had to give sort of one piece of advice or one tidbit for them? Um, well, I'd have to say is is stop thinking about a thing and start looking at the behavior you want to see um, and focus on the natural history of what, what, how should this animal be spending their day in their wild? We're not exactly, you know, we're not wild animals, but we're not domesticated animals. Zoo animals are kind of in this, their own little world. And so we're not trying to shoot for a, uh, behavioral, how they spend their behavior budget of how they would in the wild, but kind of somewhere, but using it as a reference, I think, and what the, what natural behaviors do they do in the wild that we're not providing them in a zoo environment? Um, and how, how do you want to spend their day? Um, how, you know, should they be sleeping more? Should they be resting? But should they be more active? Should they be, um, engaged more with more cognitive puzzles. Um, what are, what are, what behavior do you want to see? And then from there, you can kind of develop things and, and experiences. And it's not really, I think the new trend is to move away from like an item based enrichment program and towards more of a behavior based one. Um, and using tools like welfare assessments and uh, ethograms to kind of just figure out how your animal's spending the day. Um, because a lot of what we see isn't, it's a bit biased and it may not be accurate because you may only spend eight hours with this animal and you don't know what happens the rest of the time. Um, so I think that's kind of where to start is is what is what your animal is currently doing in a very scientific way and what behaviors do you want to see uh moving forward and what their what their time budget might look in a kind of more idealized version and to put it in sort of economic terms i would add that 
you have to be realistic about both the animal's capabilities and your staff's capabilities. If you make a really complicated thing that works really great, but nobody has time to load it, you know, put it in place and, and refill it constantly, um, it's not going to do anybody any good at all. So you have to be realistic about the, uh, literally the amount of time that you can um, put into a thing once it already exists, let alone the amount of time that you put into it, like you're suggesting, before you even attempted to see if it's working out. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. No, those are just such important, important things to be thinking about in an enrichment program for sure. Um, so, uh, you know, what are you guys most excited about with zoo enrichment lab right now? Cause you guys have been, you know, running and, uh, for, for a little while now. And, uh, I hope some of the, you know, initial kinks have been worked out or, you know, you're making progress, but what are you guys most excited about right now? We've had a very surprising year. Um, considering, the the stress of the pandemic on everything including and especially zoos and their animals and their staff we've been very busy because i think a lot of zoos thought well if we're if we're not spending money on ice cream machines and and conveyances because we had to close down to the public we'll throw some of our budgets towards our animals and it's benefited us enormously we had a, a much better year than we probably might have predicted. And what we're most excited about is that now we're busy all the time. We're, we're almost to the point where we're too busy for just two people. But there's a lot, there's also a lot of room, I think, to grow. I mean, right now it's just the two of us and we're only, we're just barely a year and plus old. So there's so much, so much more and, um, that we aren't doing that we would love to do yep. um focusing on the underserved uh taxa groups like aquatics and the insect world and uh you know herps and um that's kind of a fun a fun problem um yeah. so yeah i don't know and we never know what's going to happen next you know it just takes one curious email from somebody to spark a whole new idea and concept yeah. for sure yeah no that's that's awesome and you guys are doing you know awesome work i've been following following since you first put out the uh you know first post from zoo enrichment lab and it's uh it's awesome and i'm so glad you guys are you know making progress and and doing well but so uh, where would you uh, direct people to find you and see what you're up to and see some of the work you've done uh, where can people see that? Um, zoo and lab, zoo lab is our website. Um, and then of course, uh, Facebook. Um, Imata conference, uh, in March, uh, hosting, a, an enrichment workshop, which will be kind of fun. So if you've got any, uh, Marine mammal trainers out there, um, they're listening you can come find us and say hi um but yeah yeah awesome well i will link zoo enrichment lab and uh all the relevant socials in mm -hmm. the uh, show notes for people to check out but i do encourage people to to uh check these guys out they do some pretty amazing work and uh you know at the very least it's very inspiring to see to see what's uh what they put out. So 
thank you guys so much for coming. It was an awesome conversation uh, and, you know, one that I hope to uh, repeat in the future. Um, you know, I wish you guys all the best. And yeah, thank you guys so much for coming. Yeah, yeah. thank you so much for having us. It was a pleasure talking. Yeah. I hope it was an enriching experience for everyone. <laughs> absolutely. And challenging at the same time. <laughs> yes, absolutely.